With that upon our hearts, we open our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 14, where we will look into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is about Christ. It's about giving us a vision of Christ in His exalted glory as the conqueror, the victor over sin, over Satan, over death. And to give us a vision of the King on His throne. And to help us to understand the world that we live in today in light of who He is. So the book of Revelation has been a means for us to look unto Jesus. To get a picture of Jesus that's unique from all the other pictures we see elsewhere. It's not superior to all the other ones, but it's a very practical vision of our King that the church needs today. And this morning we continue in our study of the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 14, verses, chapter 14, verses 6 through 20. And the title of the message this morning is Christ's Coming Harvest. Christ's Coming Harvest. Chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 
Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. You're a God who speaks to us today through your word. And though today it will be my voice that our, our, this church hears, Father, I pray that, Lord, we understand it is your voice that is speaking to our hearts. It is you through your word, through the presence of your spirit, turning our eyes to look into the face of Jesus. And even this morning to get a picture of Christ that's very unique. It's a wonderful picture because Christ is wonderful, because Christ is all. But it is a sobering picture of the reality of a, his coming harvest. And so, Father, for us, we pray that you would protect us from the temptation to immediately disregard this message because, for whatever reason, we feel comfortable. Remind us this morning that this book of Revelation was written to the churches. It was written to your people who sit on a Sunday morning like we're doing this morning to warn us, to reevaluate our own hearts, to reevaluate what we're treasuring, to reevaluate the centrality of King Jesus upon our lives, that we might be ready for the coming harvest. Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear how you see and how you hear. I pray that you would overcome any and all resistance this morning that's even there right now. This passage is too sobering. And the warnings of Christ are too real that on that day many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? But Lord, Lord, didn't I? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. May this be a day, Father, we reevaluate our calling and election to make sure it is sure, to make sure it is faithful to your eternal gospel. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may remember I began last Lord's Day sermon with uh, uh, the comic from Charles Schultz where you had Charlie Brown's sister coming and talking about, she's memorized the Bible verse, and Charlie Brown says to her, yeah, what was it? She says, I can't remember. It was something from, I don't know, somewhere in Moses or the book of Reevaluation. And again, she's mistakenly mispronouncing the book of Revelation. But last week's message on God's eternal gospel, I said this that the book of Revelation really is a book of reevaluation. That's what it's intended to be in the life of the church. After Christ has exposed in his seven churches areas of compromise, areas of idolatry, areas of false teaching that Christians are being turned away from Christ in, he implores them to you who conquer and overcome, I will bless. But if you don't conquer and if you don't overcome, there is no hope. It's a word of warning to reevaluate even church goers. What is the objective reality of your heart for God? And we said last week, I, I very specifically wanted to spend some time on the message of the first angel, God's eternal gospel, where he broadens and paints on a wider canvas, a broader picture than we often understand the gospel to be. That the gospel is God's eternal gospel. He is eternal. It's for His eternal purposes. It's about His glory. Just what we talked about in our kids' time this morning. He's jealous for His glory. I won't let you make my gospel about you. My gospel is about me. It's about my glory. And in the life of one that, that I redeem through Christ, I bring in a heart that fears me. A heart that worships me, a heart that glorifies me. You can go back and look at that at verses 6 and 7 of Revelation chapter 14. What is the effect of the eternal gospel on a heart? It produces fear of God, worship of God, and a glorifying of God. Not perfectly. That's a work in progress. That's sanctification. We'll get there one day in glorification. But we must reevaluate our hearts. Is there that reality there? In us. Well, we're continuing with the message of the angels, the first angel, and then there were two others, a second angel and a third angel, in verses 6 through 13. 
But in order to benefit from that message, I think we need to begin in verses 14 through 20. Experience tells me, and my experience is my own heart, I can rush right through verses 6 through 13 and just kind of shrug my shoulders at it. But when I read verses 6 through 13 in light of verses 14 through 20, all of a sudden now there's a gravity that I, even as a professing child of God, must wrestle with. So this morning, I want to begin with Christ's harvest in verses 14 through 20. And then we'll work our way backwards to the message of the three angels. Verse 14 of Revelation chapter 14 really is the heart of Revelation chapter 14. It's the centerpiece of it. John sees Jesus in verse 14, and he uses language borrowed from Daniel chapter 7. We've been seeing this all throughout the book of Revelation. He's borrowing allusions and language from the Old Testament. And he says he sees Christ, verse 14, seated on a cloud with a golden crown on his head. Now, Let's talk about this crown for just a minute because we've seen crowns before. I mean, my goodness, going back to chapters 12 and 13, we see a dragon and beast with crowns on their heads. And one of the things we've drawn out is that in the Greek language, our English Bibles don't pull this out. It's not easy to see. There's different words for crowns. And the crowns are differing words. The crowns that we see on the, remember the beast that had the, the multiple heads and every head had a crown on it? Well, that used a very specific Greek word that has to do with governmental authority, right? You remember we talked about the, the agent of Satan, the political influence, and how he uses political influence to turn hearts away from Christ through persecution, through, through pressure. We kind of make an idol out of politics to do what only God can do. That's Well, that had to do with a ruling and a reigning for a season. That's not the word that's used for crown here that's on the Son of Man's head in verse 14. Here the Greek word is stephanos, which is crown of victory. It's a crown of victory. That the, the, crown, the crown that this Son of Man that Christ is wearing on the throne is not like the crown that we've seen everyone wearing. Like Everyone's got one. You get a crown, you get a crown, and Christ has one too. This is unique from all the other crowns. It's a crown of victory that Christ is wearing in this vision. Conquered his rivals. He's conquered the dragon, Satan. He's conquered sin. He's exalted on his throne, wearing a crown of victory. Why? Because at the cross, he did everything that was necessary through his death and resurrection. So John sees the Son of Man, Christ, seated on this white cloud. He's crowned with the crown of victory. And then something, this is the first time we've seen this in the book of Revelation. There's something in his hand, a sharp sickle. And of course, the sickle is used for harvesting crops, right? It's used for, for cutting crops, for cutting wheat. Well, what's the purpose of this sickle in the context here? Well, this is a picture of the end of time, a final judgment. Again, I've told you we've gone through the seven seal judgments, we've gone through the seven trumpet judgments, and there will be seven bold judgments to come. We're in a section right now where we're kind of going through those seven things again, but from an inverse perspective. The seven seals and seven trumpets focused upon life down here. This section here is focusing upon from heaven's perspective. Same time period, same things going on, and it's here again, final judgment. At the very end of it, this coming final harvest from Christ's perspective, from God's perspective. And this sickle is setting the scene for this coming metaphor of harvesting, a final judgment. Why is he harvesting? What gives him the right? Well, we can go fundamentally all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Because God is eternal. And God is the creator of all things, right? To our, our kids this morning, well, what is God? You remember the catechism question, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. That's what gives him the right to harvest. That's what gives him the right to hold the world accountable to him. And Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. All things came into being through him. So all of 
The world is a field that God made. And every human being is one who's been planted in this field. And at the proper time, at the end of time, Christ comes to gather up everyone. The world is His field, created for His glory. Every person has grown up in this field, different time periods, different centuries. Everyone has grown up in this field, and at the end of time, Christ will gather everyone up. Those whose bodies are in the grave, those who are still walking the earth, all will be gathered together for final judgment. And like the process of winnowing wheat with a sickle, right? The wheat is is thrown up and it's sickled through, and the good stuff falls to the ground. The bad stuff in the Bible called chaff, what happens to it? It floats away. It's worthless. It's meaningless. There's no weight to it. The good stuff, the wheat, falls to the ground. But the chaff drifts away. In this harvest, there will be a similar division. In verse 15, we read, To this Son of Man sitting on the throne, crowned with the crown of victory, sickle in hand, ready for final harvest, final judgment. Verse 15, Another angel is sent from the throne to Christ. Verse 15 says, Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. I can tell you, commentators go haywire over this passage. And here's why. They struggle with seeing, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's going to come and tell Jesus what to do? What angel is going to come? And, t- and so they'll use that to say, no, 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 the Son of Man on this call, this is not Jesus. No, it, it is Jesus. It is Christ. So then how do we explain you have an angel coming and telling Jesus what to do? It is a mystery, but it's not insurmountable. Just pause for a minute and think about it. It really is a beautiful picture to think about. When Christ came to earth, we talked last week about God's eternal gospel, that it resonated in the mind of God in eternity past. It was always there. Was it Jesus who took the initiative and said, Dad, Dad, I'll do this? No. The Bible tells us. Just as God chooses you and I, God chose Christ to be his redeemer. God chose Christ for this. The Father chose the Son. When the fullness of time had come, and it was time for Christ to come to earth, was it Jesus who said, Dad, I'm kind of watching things like you are. I, I, think, should we, should, I think I should go now. No. We're told it was the Father who declared the fullness of time had come. Now, Son, go. When Jesus lived on the earth for 33 years, does he ever once Go rogue. What I mean, does he ever once do anything independent of the will of the Father? The answer is no. Our salvation hangs upon that. He has to do all that pleases the Father. And in John 17, he declares as much. I have done all that you have sent me to do. No, it's always the Father who is ordaining and sovereign over the activity of the Son. In John chapter 5, Jesus talks about judgment. And even there he says, I don't judge of my own initiative. Well, whose initiative is it? The Father's. And when Christ is asked by the disciples after his death and raised, Jesus, can you tell us when these things are going to take place, what was his response? I can't. It's not for you to know this. The times are in the hands of the Father. So what we're looking at here, we see Christ, even in this period of exaltation, enthroned on high, he's got the crown of victory, and yet he is still doing the will of the Father. 
And I do think, let's pause there for a minute. There's a powerful point of application for you and I today. A perfect pattern for you and I who, I even heard in our prayer time this morning, people praying things like this, Lord, we want to do great things for you. Majestic things for you. And that is a right prayer to pray. Lord, you are worthy. We want to to make much of you. But notice, we don't have the freedom to just do whatever we want to do. Even when our heart's in the right place. You have Christ even on this, the Son of Man on the clouds, still committing Himself wholeheartedly to the will of the Father. It is the Father who knows His eternal gospel. It is the Father who knows His plans and purposes. It is the Father who is ordained not only the ends, but also the means. And Christ will not even put the sickle to the harvest until the Father, He receives word from the Father. It's time, Son. Now's the time. What beautiful picture here. This is not to minimize Christ. It's not to make Christ secondary. The Bible is replete with commentary that the Father loves the Son. The Father is equal with the Son. That Christ is exalted. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is clear the Father exalts the Son above everyone else. But the Son loves the Father so much, He will not go independent of the will of the Father in either the ends or the means. He's constantly doing the Father's will, which speaks to, go back to chapters 6, 5 and 6 of Revelation. You remember the Father had the scroll in His hand. And who's worthy to take it? Well, Christ did. And what's in that scroll is the unfolding of all these events in the time between Christ's ascension and His return. And He's following the plan. He's unfolding the scroll and executing it according to the will of the Father. I think there's a word of wisdom to you and I. We are very much unlike Christ when we try to do a lot of things in our own imagination, our own ideas, good things, but of our own initiative, our own creativity. And the life of the church, great ideas, but the God who ordains the ends also is ordaining the means centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here when we see the angel coming to Christ, telling him now's the time. He's bringing the message from the Father. All right, son, now's the time. Are we as intertwined with the Father and His will and His purposes and not only His ends, but also His means in Christ to accomplish His will? So the angel comes with this message from the Father. The time has come. And then in verse 16 we read, So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. All right? So a very general, broad picture of harvest. The Father has said, now's the time, final judgment, he swings the sickle. This is a very, if we can use a wide-angle view. There's going to be, in the coming verses, a much more close-up. But this is a very wide-angle view. Jesus of Nazareth spoke about this coming broad harvest at the end of days, in his public ministry. For instance, he spoke of, in parables, about a coming harvest, right? About the sowing of seeds, and it produces different things, and there's going to come a harvest. In Matthew chapter 13, we read this passage. Let me just read it to you this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus says this. He, that's Jesus, put another parable before them, his disciples, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed, uh, who sowed good seed in his field, but while, he's, he, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the, plant, among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up again and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then is there, does it also have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? 
But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Just one of multiple parables that Jesus talked about a coming harvest. That in his field that he's planted, there's, there's the wheat, but there's also weeds and they're growing together. Lord, Lord, do you want us, again, speaking of the independence, going rogue. Lord, Lord, isn't this a good idea? Let us go and, and we'll pull out the weeds. This, this would be good. This would be glorifying. No. At the right time, at the right time, they will be harvested. It's a picture there. And then he goes on to explain that parable in verses 36 and following. But this coming harvest is something that's it's not new to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Jesus was, was talking about it in his own public ministry. And then as we return back to chapter 14, in verse 17, we see a close-up of the harvest that we just read about. So verses 14, 15, and 16 Christ is ready. He's just waiting for word for the Father. The Father sends it through the angel, and then he executes the plan. In verses 17 through the end of the chapter, we're looking at that exact same thing, but in a close-up. There's a close-up. We, we can talk in broad generalities about a harvest, a separation of the wheat and the chaff, a separation of the, the believer and the unbeliever. But let's get a little more intense than that. Why two different accounts of the same judgment? Because the double narrative emphasizes the severity of it. This second picture goes into greater detail, reaching with a climax. Did you read and understand verse 20, verses 19 and 20? Of massive blood flowing. It's getting more graphic. It's getting more detailed. The imagery that's being described is the same thing we saw in verses 15 and 16, but with a clearer amplification. Verses 17 through 20 are probably the goriest pictures in all the book of Revelation. And it's intended to be so. To communicate to us, the seven churches, to communicate to us the severity of Christ's harvest. In this final account of, of final judgment, this time it's two angels who come forth with sharp sickles. Again, these are visions. So the fact that the details don't match up doesn't speak to there's a problem here. They don't harmonize. These are two different visions of the same thing, emphasizing different things. One of the angels comes from heaven, which simply implies God's in control of this. The other angel comes from the altar. What's the significance of that? Remember the martyrs? around chapter 7, uh, chapter 8, I'm sorry, the martyrs in chapter 8, in the midst of the, 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 the sealed judgments, they cry out to the Father, how long, O Lord? They're praying to the Father, and, and we're told in chapter 8 that those, those prayers are being accumulated. God himself says, not now, now's not the right time. At the right time, it will come. But those prayers, remember, they're being mixed and mingled with the incense with Christ. They're being made perfect. Fast forward, that's what's happening here. From that altar, those prayers of the martyrs, how long, O oh Lord? Bingo. Now. Now it comes. Another difference we see in this vision from the first one in verses 14, 15, and 16 is that people are being compared not to wheat, but to grapes. Just a shift in imagery. Same thing. The harvest sickle is not going to wheat here. It's going into grapes, into the unbeliever. And they're described as grapes here, with all of the earth being the vine. Why grapes? I think the picture is more intense than wheat. You can talk about the sickle to wheat, and you've got the good stuff that falls to the ground and the chaff that flies away. When you put a grape in the wine press, it produces something. And there's more to this here. Why the vivid imagery? Why the savagery? Why 
this picture of final judgment that's so gory and so gruesome, the picture of a grape in the wine press exploding, symbolic of blood, feeding into verses 19 and 20, the flow of blood that's so massive it fills up an entire city. Because this is about vindication. We just talked in our kids' time this morning about a God who is jealous for his glory. About a God who created each and every one of you and me for him, for his glory. We, every one of us, have told God, no thank you. I don't want you to be king. I want to be king. I don't want you telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. And we've gone rogue. We've gone our own way. And the Bible tells us in broad generalities, things like this, the wages of sin is death. And we hear that and we talk about it. And it's true. Oftentimes we miss, going back to last week, this is the eternal gospel. The sins of God's creation against him are cosmic. They are cataclysmic. When we tell God, butt out, I don't want to do what you tell me. I'm going to do what I want to do. We have offended the infinite triune God, the creator in whom we owe our entire existence. God is not just merely a judge who executes the law or punishment for the law. He's an offended king. It is against him we have lived. We may in our own minds think, oh, I'm not hurting anybody. I do what I want to do. I mind my own business. I just, I just don't care to be led and guided and forced to obey another sovereign. I want to do what I want to do. Well, every decision we've made has been against him, against his rule, against his reign, against his sovereignty, against his character, against his existence. He's the eternal one. We are finite. We were made for him. Every time we choose to take a breath and it not be for him, do anything and it not overflowingly be for him, then we have lived against this God. I benefited profoundly from the Puritans. They used to call sin this, the murder of God. They did not mean by that that you actually can murder God. That's not the case. Their point being is that we do what we want to do. And we just, it's almost as though we kill God. You don't exist. It's the murder of God. You're not in control. I am. And now, in Christ's harvest, we're standing before that God. The God that we have murdered. Can I use that language? You understand it in the Puritan concept of it? The God that we've rejected. The God that we've offended. Our creator who made us for him. Now, the God who's jealous that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now we stand before him. And to him, symbolically, he compares us to a grape. Here's how I will vindicate my glory and my name that you have rejected. Look at you, grape. Again, symbolic language, right? We're accustomed to this. You've grown all fat and ripe with your accumulated sin. You've done life your way. You've done what you wanted to do. And now you're filled up. Verse 20, 19, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Outside the city is imagery we see in the Old Testament. You go outside of the city, it's akin to when Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden, separated from God. You don't have access to God anymore. And the wrath of God sent outside the city, outside of his grace, outside of his mercy, 
into utter darkness, utter despair, and complete alienation from God. And there, your life will be forever crushed under God's anger. You see, we talk about God's jealous for His glory, and that the hard part is there. We know it here, but we don't understand the weight that that carries in His own mind and in His own heart. This Christ's coming harvest will be unlike anything that's ever been seen before. There's another vision of this in chapter 19, verses 11 through 15, where Jesus is returning. He's coming in white robes, white robes of victory. And those around him are clothed in white, but there is something unique about Jesus' white robe. His robes are said to be dipped in the blood of his enemies. Why? Because of his coming harvest. He has trampled every one who has murdered the Father through a life of rebellion, a life of independence, a life of self-centeredness, a life that's all about me and my wants. Christ himself did nothing outside the will of the Father. Not a thing. And that is our righteousness as well. Even our good ideas, the, we, God doesn't give us the freedom to be, go rogue and strategize what we want to do. It's a life lived faithfully to Him. Now, it says that the blood from this, again, the, the, the crushed grape symbol, the symbolism there, it spreads far. Now, it's using hyperbole here, right? It's kind of excessive, but drawn from a vineyard. And it talks about the 1600 sadia, uh, the blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle. The idea there is the length and the width of, of, of Palestine and as high up as you can see. It's, that's the wrath of God. It'll be massive, universal, all creation. That is Christ's coming harvest, verses 14 through 20. That's the reality. It's intended to be gruesome. It's intended to be clear. It's intended for those in the seven churches and you and I this morning to feel the weight of it and to understand, my goodness, where will you go to be safe from this God who comes to punish every evildoer who has murdered him in his glory, who has not given him the glory he's jealous of. Where do we go? Where will you find safety? It's exactly the question that was asked. Do you remember in the, the, the seven seals, the final judgment there? There are the unbelievers when Christ comes in, in judgment, in final judgment, they're crying out for the mountains to fall upon them, to bury them alive, for that would be better than to stand face to face with this God. The same, again, we're looking at the same thing over and over and over again. This is not something different from what we've already seen, just a different perspective on it. Where will you go? The fact that the town is filled with blood means there's nowhere to go. This is the harvest that Christ warned would come. But now, with that gruesome vision in mind, Christ sends three messengers. Three messengers, the book of Revelation was written to the seven churches. Do unbelievers need to look over our shoulders and be aware of this? Absolutely. But this is not first and foremost an evangelistic passage for outsiders. It is those for inside the church. Yes, those outside the church need to know this as well. But here's the danger. Churchgoers will immediately default to that and not reevaluate our own lives in light of this. Because this was written to the seven churches. And the three messengers are for us 
What are they saying? The first angel comes in verses 6 and 7. This is the passage we looked at last week with the eternal gospel. We said last week that it's God's judgment, but it's mixed with grace. Here, this first angel. The message, because it comes in, and the, gospel, the, God, the eternal gospel here is, painted, painted broadly, fear God, glorify God, worship God. And we say that that's the work of the gospel, the eternal gospel in Jesus Christ upon a soul. Not just that you got your ticket punched, you got dipped in water, and now, I don't know when it's coming, but I, I'll be ready. The gospel talks about making your calling and election sure. The, the work of Christ produces within us something different than what we were. We were a God murderer. We were one who did not worship God, fear God, honor God. We went independent, but the work of the eternal gospel is to do an inward work upon our soul through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and give us a heart that does fear God, that does worship God, that is glorifying God. And that's why the angel comes and says, the harvest is coming, it's gruesome. Now evaluate, are you fearing God? Are you worshiping God? Are you glorifying God? That is the mark of the eternal gospel upon your soul. The danger for me, and I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because I can rush right through this and think, that's not for me, that's for somebody else. No. Oh, this is for us. Yes, of course, the unbelievers need to hear this. We have friends and family and coworkers who we must be about the business of letting them know their sins against a holy God and the promise of life everlasting in Christ Jesus. But Covenant Life Church, first and foremost, right now, this morning, the business at hand is this is inspired by God for the seven churches for you and I. Do you understand you and I must deal with this passage this morning? Why? Because the people that this was originally preached to in those seven churches, they were at ease. They were at ease. They were sitting there in their churches, in Laodicea, in Thyatira, in Sardis, and wherever they were, in Olive Branch, Mississippi. And they gathered together for worship, but meanwhile in their soul, they were at war with God. There was idolatry, there was compromise, there were false teachings that they were believing, and they were completely unaware of the danger. They were trapped into, remember the strategy of the, the dragon and the beast? A counterfeit Christianity, a false religion that just seems so much like the real thing that it, it blinds us to the reality that true Christianity is fearing God, loving God, serving God, glorifying God, worshiping God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And anything less than that is not the true gospel. And so to these seven churches and to us this morning, before this tragic news about Christ's harvest comes one more time, Christ sends these angels with a word of warning. Don't sit there in ease. Don't sit there and think this isn't about you. Christ meets in our churches. Christ knows our hearts. That's seven letters. This picture here has been used before. In the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, God paints a picture of his people and they're just sitting around in ease, taking solace in that they are, quote-unquote, the people of God. And in the passage, the context of it, God, from God, flows a river of goodness, a river of grace, a river of mercy. And his people just sit there. Instead of coming to the river of God's goodness, they just sit there in their dry, dull puddles. Zephaniah chapter 1. And the thinking goes like this. You hear the Bible stuff over and over. You hear it every Sunday. But do you do anything with it? You hear it, but completely unresponsive to it. And so in Zephaniah 1, God says, and I quote, I am going to search Jerusalem, I'm going to search my people with lamps, and I will punish the man who is stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. In other words, God's not going to do anything about this. 
So they're stagnant in their spirit, they're complacent, they're unresponsive, they're satisfied, they're dull, they hear the word of God preached, and they just shrug their shoulders. He's overstating it. I mean, he's exaggerating. Why are you making such a big deal out of nothing? And God says, I'm coming to you with my lamp, and I'm searching the dark crevices of your heart, and where I see dullness, where I see stagnation, where I see you're unresponsive to me, because I've saved you to fear me, to worship me, to glorify me, I am coming to judge. Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure. That's why the gospel writers implore us, Christian, make your calling and election sure. Constantly be evaluating because the work of the eternal gospel produces an effect in the heart of love for God, fearing God, worshiping God, treasuring God. Constantly be evaluating and reevaluating. Today is that true in my life? And where it's not, repent and return to your king. Is God saying that there's no security for the believer? Absolutely not. He is revealing, I think, one of the tactics of Satan where Satan has brought in a false teaching into the life of the church that we've made salvation about. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. Once saved, always saved, which is true, except once truly saved, always saved, and that truly saved will have an effect upon your soul and will produce a Godward orientation. And as long as you persevere in fearing God, loving God, serving God, then you've made your calling and election sure. Unresponsiveness to God is indication that has the eternal gospel really had its effect? I said last week, and I'll say it again, and I know this is hard. I've wrestled with this for years. I can only pray God will help you not to misunderstand what I'm saying. The gospel is not first and foremost about conversion. That's a means to what it's first and foremost about. It's about the glory of God. The cross is about the glory of God. The work of redemption upon a soul is about the glory of God. That's why the first angel says the eternal gospel is fearing God, worshiping God, glorifying God. Covenant Life Church, here's the scary thing. We can sit here this morning and do all kinds of good things, praying and singing and worshiping and we can say nice things, religious things and yet in our soul there's still no fear of God. We can be at ease with the fact that there's no earnest desire for God. I'm guilty of doing it. We can be at ease that week after week after week God's word is imperfectly proclaimed. I'm sorry, you have to listen to me. Maybe one day God will bring you somebody better. But in the meantime, it's me. And as long as we're faithful to God's word, and yet there's unresponsiveness. Now, yeah, I'm, that's not me indicting you. I, I, I can't know what's going on in your soul. Only you can, can evaluate, is that true of you? But the promise here is, you can be sitting in church and be at rebellion against God, not fearing God, not glorifying God, not worshiping Him. The great sin is not that you hate God, it's just that He's not that big a deal. And go back to the harvest. He is jealous for His glory. Everyone who does not make a big deal out of Him, crushed like a second angel comes, we'll be quicker here. The second angel comes with a warning. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Well, who is this Babylon? We're not going to spend a lot of time with it because we're going to see it much more clearly in chapter 17, 18, 19 in that area. But what we do know is Babylon represents the enticing allurements of the world. We saw it in the letter to the seven churches. It's the enticing allurements of the world who entices us to turn from God and to embrace it, embrace sin. And notice the word's not used here, but Babylon is portrayed as a prostitute here. It's a prostitute who lures people in. But notice the second angel warns about 
the world and its enticements and allurements to turn away from God. The warning is fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The world allures us with all kinds of promises, but they're empty promises. When Christ comes to harvest, Babylon the great is fallen, fallen, which means it's through. All the promises of the the prostitute, the world around us, come to me, man, you'll find joy, you'll find happiness, you'll find fulfillment. When Christ comes for harvest, the woman who painted herself up as alluring will be thrown down and destroyed forever. The point is this, for you and I, again, what did Jesus expose in the life of the seven churches? Compromise. Compromise with the world. And the same is true in our own hearts this morning. We cannot believe the whispers of the world. It's hard. No temptation has overtaken the seven churches, but such as is common to man, and you and I. We hear that we're encouraged to run from the enticing sin of the world. Run to Christ. You've got to run to something superior, something satisfying, something that will fill the void, and that is Christ. The prostitute is doomed and all who are in bed with her when Christ comes for harvest are doomed with her. And then the third angel. The third angel comes and talks about a cup of wrath that has come, has been mixed. Those who drank from the cup of the Babylon the Great, the world, you will drink from this third cup, the cup of God's wrath. It will not be an option to drink from one and not drink from the other. Those who drink the first cup, the prostitutes drink, Babylon's drink, the world's drink, the world's enticement, will have to drink the second cup. It will not be allowed to put down the second cup of wrath. It will be an everlasting punishment, an everlasting wrath of God, of God's anger, of God's undiluted wrath. You know, we've been going through the seven seals, the seven trumpets. We've been looking at these again in this kind of inverted picture of God's judgment upon a world that lives in resistance to him from a different perspective. And every step of the way, I hope you've, you've caught on to this. I've said this. It's a, it's a restrained wrath. Things are bad, but not as bad as they should be. Not as bad as they will be. We can read back in the Old Testament, God flooded the entire world at one time, except for one family. It was bad, but it wasn't as bad as it should have been. You can go back and look at he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. But he allowed Lot to get away free. Every expression of wrath that we see, save the cross, every expression of God's wrath that we read about in Scripture is not like this wrath of the third angel and the harvest to come. Because every wrath here is restrained. It's diluted. But this cup that the third angel warns about is undiluted. It is the full measure of God's wrath. No more mixture of mercy. No more mixture of common grace. This cup will be forced to be drank by everyone. So you've got these three messages in light of the coming harvest. The first message, Christ. Harvest is coming. There's still time. Fear God. Worship God. Glorify God. The second message. The world looks enticing. The world tries to turn you away from Christ to something bigger and better. Don't follow her. She's doomed. And if you are in bed with her, if you're holding hands with her, if you're drinking with her, you too will be doomed. The third message. The wrath that comes will be unlike any other wrath you've ever seen before. It will be an undiluted wrath on everyone who is in their heart not fearing God, loving God, glorifying God. Rather, they are living in line with the dragon and the beast. And then comes verse 14. The father tells the son, the time is now. Put the sickle in, son. This is about personal vindication. I've been patient. I've been kind beyond measure. I've been common grace. I've restrained what was deserved. 
The martyrs have been crying out for centuries, how long, O Lord? And I told them, wait. I told them, wait. It's not yet. There's more that need to die. I'm not done with this. But now in this vision, it's done. So as we close, how do we live on this today? Well, there's two applications. One for the unbeliever. For those who are still drinking of the cup of the world, for those who are still drinking of the cup of self-centeredness, the, the drinking of the, the cup of life's all about me, you've quote-unquote murdered God, you're not living for His glory, you're not fearing Him and worshiping Him and treasuring Him as you should. The application to you is, is simple. Hear the angels. Hear the angels. Hear the warnings. There's time. We don't know how much, but there's time right now. Contrast your life with the description of a life of a believer. A believer, the eternal gospel upon a soul produces fear of God, worship of God, glorifying God. If you need help, with it, go back to last week's message. We, we went into detail a little bit more. What, what does that even mean? Compare your life to that. Flee from Babylon. Flee from, flee from the world. Understand the gravity of God's wrath. Run to Christ before the Father tells him to put the sickle in. We've been looking at seven seals, seven trumpets of judgment, right? Judgment that Christ pours out upon a world that lives in rebellion to him. We've said this before, but it applies here. What are the trumpets for? The trumpet is to sound an alarm. There's time. Do you know what comes after this section? The seven bowls. What is a bowl for? It's for pouring out. Once they start pouring, time is up. We're still in the period of the seven seals and the seven trumpets. If you're here this morning and you're not dead, let me put it that way, Christ has not yet come and you're not dead, you're still in the time between Christ. Ascension and his return. You're in the season of the seals and the trumpets and these judgments we've been looking at. Looking at the same thing. There's still time. But the bold judgments are coming. Today, run to Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess, I've murdered you in my heart. I've told you, no, I don't want you. And you know it. Lord, I confess my sin to you. And I, I repent. Repentance being person-oriented. I've murdered you. I'm coming back to you by grace in Christ. I'm coming. I repent. I want to fear you and love you and worship you by grace. What about for the believer? The application, again, this was written for Christians, so the application is in the text for believers. Verse 12 and 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Do you see John's word to you, professing Christian? Seeing that the harvest is soon to come. Seeing verses 14 and 20, it's on its way. Your job now, press on. Endure. Do not sit back unresponsive. Don't sit back thinking, I, I, got my, I prayed a prayer a long time ago. I got, I got baptized when I was a kid. I know when Jesus comes, man, I know that I know that I know that I know I did those things. And don't be unresponsive to Jesus' own warnings about what a true believer is. The message of the angel. There's a Godward orientation to the God's eternal gospel. It's about him. And the message for Christians here, persevere. Where that is at work in your heart by grace, persevere. Endure in fearing God, in loving God, in glorifying Him. William Gurnall says this with regard to perseverance of the saints. When we take upon us the profession of Christ's name, we list ourselves in His master role. And by it, we covenant or we promise that we will live and die with him in opposition with all his enemies. 
Therefore, Christ tells us upon what terms he will enroll us among his disciples. Jesus himself says this. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Christ will not entertain us until we resign ourselves freely to him, that there, be, may, no, there may be no disputing with him as one under his authority. He that will be Christ's soldier must persevere to the end of his life. Not that he just simply takes the field, which is how a lot of people understand salvation. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. I took the field. Gurnall says no. The soldier of Christ who takes the field and keeps the field. Not that he sets out, but he holds out in this holy war devoted to Christ until the very, very so the message here to the seven churches, to you and I, Covenant Life Church, the harvest of God is nearer today than it was yesterday. I have no idea when. We've been waiting 2,000 years. It may be another 2,000 years. I'm not trying to frighten you. If I'm going to frighten you, it's not with how near it is. It is with the wrath of Almighty God, who is jealous for His glory. And He says, endure. Persevere in fearing God and glorifying God and in worshiping Him alone. How? looking to Jesus. Christ is everything that you need. Christ is all in all of His beauty, His majesty, His grandeur. He has done everything necessary for the forgiveness of your sin. Look to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. He is enough. You cling to Him in the Word daily. You cling to Him in your prayer life. You cling to Him by applying the truths of who Christ is to everything to you. The book of re-evaluation. 